Welcome to Our Parents Did What? A tour of the parenting perils of yesteryear. I'm Diane Aragona. And I'm your co-host, Jen Tierney. Join us as we travel back in time to take a look at the sometimes unbelievable history of parenting. Hey, Diane. Hi, Jen. How are you? I'm real good. I'm doing pretty good. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. It's like, this is my favorite time of the year. Love fall. Me too. It's just... I really like it. I mean, I'm partial to it because my birthday is at the end of September and right. I always loved school. So this is like a great time for me. <laughs> I mean, I am I think I'm really a summer girl. Like if I had to choose one season, but summer and fall are very, very close. Like mm-hmm. the only thing that makes summer ending okay is like apple pie and sweaters and blankets and tea. So fall is so beautiful. It is great. Yeah. So it's so yeah, it's nice time. It is. (laughs) So why don't we start off with some mom moments? Do you want to hit me with yours? Yes. This one was, I mean, I thought it was very cute. I guess you always think what your own kid does is cute. But (laughs) (laughs) my daughter has been um, really boycotting naps lately. And like, just I guess this is the 18 month sleep regression. I don't know. But she does not want to nap. She naps for like 20 minutes. And then she's not mad. She's just like, awake. And then she just gets tired really early at night. So usually she goes to bed at seven, but the past like four nights at like 6.15, like right after dinner, she'll put her passy in. She'll grab marshmallow, which is like her lovey that she takes everywhere, including to bed. And she'll open the door to the upstairs. She'll crawl up the stairs and she'll literally start like climbing in her crib. Oh, she, she's like, all right, I'm done now. So <laughs> she did this the other, I think it was last, was it last night or two nights ago? She went upstairs. She was like pointing in her crib. So I was like, okay. So we got in our pajamas and we read our books and I always sing her a song before we go to bed. I sing her goodnight, my someone from the music man. Oh my goodness. And so usually she like sits there and she watches me and she'll like touch my hand and it's very sweet. And this time halfway through my song, she got off of like the the chair with me and walked over to her crib and was like climbing in like, okay, stop. I'm done. Bye. (laughs) So I put her to bed. (laughs) Adios, mom. Yeah. She was like, I've had enough. So I put her to bed at like 630 the past few nights, but she slept till six in the morning yesterday, which she's been waking up at like 445. So six o'clock is like amazing. So I guess she just doesn't want to nap and needs the extra sleep overnight, but I'm kind of trying to roll with it. Yeah. I mean, 12-hour nights are a thing of beauty. And when you get when you get there, it's like you just hope those days will never end. Yeah. And she – well, she <laughs> used to always do that. And then the past like – I guess like three weeks, it's just been weird. She's up mm-hmm. super early in the morning. She won't nap. I don't know. I know. We, we have similar issues with like – because there's three of them, you know – any given night, one of them will have a weird sleep night. So right. almost every night is a weird sleep night here for us, one reason or another. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> so I've been trying to think of a real good mom moment, and I don't know. My my brain is very fuzzy lately for so many reasons, <laughs> mostly because like during all of this sameness of the pandemic, I feel like I haven't had very much that I've had to be responsible for. But the last few weeks, suddenly, like my my levels of responsibility have increased exponentially. And, and I've had to remember like appointments, 
and meetings and things that, like, I just haven't had to think about in a long time. And now I'm like, oh, my God, I have to remember all the things. And so tomorrow is Emma's sixth birthday. Oh, my God, it is. (laughs) It is. And so, like, she's all about her birthday this year. Like, it's a big deal. And, And so the other thing is that her birthday is, like, right before Halloween every year. Yeah. And so it's always like a Halloween themed birthday party for her. There's always costumes. There and so like this year's hard because we don't have you know all of the um sorry somebody's crying upstairs. I, heard, <laughs> I can I could hear, hear them it. Three floors down. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm so far as far away from you as I can get. Why can I hear you so clearly? You know what it is? What? We have central air in our house now. And I can hear him through the ducts. It carries that sound. Oh, my God. My mom moment is right now. Hearing my <laughs> screaming children through the, the air ducts in my you can't, house. You oh can't escape. God. It's crazy. So anyway, Emma's got a lot of requests. Her birthday this year is like equivalent to Christmas in the I have a list. These are all the things I want, you know, and I'm a pushover mom and I just want to get her all the things because she'll be happy and I just want people to be happy. So I'm like, yeah. oh, well, I can get you this and you'll be happy, you know. So and also because it's Halloween, I always ask her, well, what do you want to be for Halloween this year? And it's always going to be her birthday outfit, you know. Right. And so I asked her over and over and over and over and over and over again, what do you want to be? What do you want to be? And she was like, oh, I don't know. I have to think about it. You know, all right, well, TikTok kid, like, <laughs> right, we gotta get because I make it every year, so I'm like, like, come on, <laughs> I don't have much time left. And so last weekend, she was finally like, "Mom, I want to be Rainbow Dash," and I was like, "Okay, cool, I'll get on that." So the last few days has been me trying to like put together a Rainbow Dash costume. I don't know if you're familiar with Rainbow Dash. I'm not. She is, she is the coolest in. Emma's opinion of the My Little Ponies. I thought it was My Little Pony. Okay. Yep, it is My Little Pony. And it. she's just, you know, for a very long time, she thought Rainbow Dash was a boy. And I had to explain, no, the ponies in My Little Ponies are all girls. <laughs> and Rainbow uh-huh. Dash is a girl. And just because she's a tomboy doesn't mean she's right. not a girl. So I'm like super stoked that she wants to be Rainbow Dash. But it was, you know, like... Another thing I had to do, my list of things to do for Emma's birthday tomorrow and then Saturday, the day that we're having the party, is non-trivial. And I don't know why I do this to myself every year, but I don't know what's happening. Oh, man. Tonight, tonight, Diane, she asked me if I would make her a Rainbow Dash birthday cake tomorrow. And I was like, no. Well, that's a little late (laughs) in the game. too late. That's just too late. I'm not Santa. (laughs) So anyway, you have something to tell me about today. I certainly do. Are you ready? I'm as ready as I'll ever be. I'm going to tell you today about the landmark Supreme Court case of 1965, Griswold v. Connecticut. I've never heard of this. (gasps) Oh, good. Okay, oh, good, oh, good, oh, good. I had not either until I was listening to uh, another podcast that I like, and it was not about this case, but they mentioned it in passing about something else. And I was like, oh, what is this? And this might pertain to my podcast. And so I looked it up and it was very interesting. So we're going to we're going to talk about how this changed family planning in America moving forward. Okay. Yes. 
So let's um, go all the way back in time to 1879 when Connecticut passed a law that criminalized the encouragement or use of birth control. Ooh. So keep in mind it said encouragement of or use of. So any person who uses any drug, medicinal article, or instrument for the purposes of preventing contraception shall be fined not less than $40 or imprisoned not less than 60 days. Holy moly. That might not seem like a lot of money, but $40 in 1879 is $1,076 today. Yeah, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And 60 days is a long time to be in jail. It is. Mm-hmm. And any person who assists, abets, counsels, causes, hires, or commands another to commit this offense may be prosecuted as if they actually committed the crime. Holy. Yeah. Crazy, right? Oh, Connecticut. Come on. I know. You think you think like Northeast. You think this is not where this stuff happens. Not true. No, not no. back then. <laughs> not back then, right? But the crazy thing is, we think 1879, like, oh, that was so long ago. But fast forward into the 1900s, and this law just never gets changed. Wow. So let's talk about who is Griswold, because it's Griswold versus Connecticut, right? Mm-hmm. So Griswold is Estelle Griswold. She was the executive director of the Planned Parenthood League of Connecticut. Oh. Yes. Nice. She held that position until 1965 when the you-know-what hit the fan and everything happened. Let's learn a little bit about Estelle and her life to give us a better idea of um, how this all came to be. And just like many of the people we talk about, there are some wonderful things that she did. And then there are also some not-so-great things about her that we, mm. have to, we have to be honest about to tell her story. Nice. Estelle was born in Hartford, Connecticut in 1900. Um, I thought this little tidbit was interesting, so I threw it in here. She studied voice at Hart College of Music and even pursued her vocal studies in Paris, which I thought was very interesting. Very interesting. Right? All right. But she didn't end up doing anything with music because in 1927, she moved to Washington, D.C. with her husband, Richard Griswold, and she began her pre-medical studies and was employed as a medical technologist. So I guess she got married and was like, I'm not going to travel the world as a singer, you know, so I better find something else to do. And what year was this again? Uh, she moved to D.C. in 1927. She was born in 1900. So she was 27. It's really fascinating because she she studied music and then she studied medicine. Yeah. And like in 1927, that seems like rare for women. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I don't know this for sure, but I think Either her husband had money or she came from money. I think she was of a maybe a higher class where where you had some more opportunities to pursue things like this. Yeah. I think. I would assume, yeah. Right? Yeah. So when she moved to D.C. with her husband, she worked with the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Association. And she also worked with a bunch of like church organizations in the 1940s that would do like mission work. And she helped to relocate displaced people who, you know, were displaced either because of war or famine or, you know, horrible things going on in their countries. And she learned firsthand then the devastating effects of being poor and poverty. Mm -hmm. So her drive to make birth control available to all was mainly caused by a want for population control. 
Mm -hmm. which when we break that down to those times, she was into eugenics. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, it's your favorite. Yeah. I always talk about eugenics. I don't know why. (laughs) Yeah. It was just big back then. It was really big. And, And the Nazis, it was not just the Nazis. It was everywhere. It was in the United States. It was all over the place. It was terrible. And it was around for a long time. Mm-hmm. When when people said population control back then, they basically meant population control of the poor. And in order to control populations of poor and black and brown people, they wanted to make contraception available to all people. Although in their minds, wealthy people probably wouldn't need it or maybe wouldn't want it. Yeah. Estelle believed in widespread access to contraception because she thought that would help reduce the populations of those living in poverty, which meant people of color. Mm -hmm. She maybe didn't have the best intentions when we look back, but what she ended up doing was huge for women and for family planning in general. So Mm -hmm. you kind of have to take the good with the bad here. Yeah. I don't know what else to say, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So. Yeah. So she returned to Connecticut from D.C. and she became the Planned Parenthood executive director, and she remained in that position until 1965. And up until 65, the Supreme Court had refused to hear two other cases challenging this ridiculous Connecticut law that we mentioned in the beginning um, that basically said no woman married or single could purchase birth control, and she couldn't even ask, like, a pharmacist or, uh, you know, a counselor how to avoid an unwanted pregnancy. They weren't even allowed to give that information out to women. Yeah. Which is crazy to me. Yeah. I I can't imagine living in that world. No, I cannot. But under Griswold, Planned Parenthood started orchestrating border runs where they would transport women from Connecticut to birth control clinics in Rhode Island and New York where it was legal. Oh, sure. Right? So she started to try to get women access to the contraception that they so desperately wanted and needed. It was just not legal in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So finally, in 1961, Griswold had had enough of this law, and she wanted to challenge it once and for all. So she teamed up with Dr. Lee Buxton of Yale Medical School, and they decided to open a birth control clinic in New Haven, Connecticut, for the sole purpose of dispensing contraceptives. Oh, wow. So they were just literally challenging this law head on. Jeez. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine doing that as a woman? I can't. I can't. Yeah, I just can't. And in 1965, (laughs) she was born in 1900, so she was 65. Well, 61. They they opened it in 61. So she was not like a young woman. Like, she was in in 61. I mean, 61 years old was, I don't want to say old, but like. Yeah, but she she had had an entire career and had spent decades doing this work. She could have stopped. (laughs) Yeah. She was like, no. She's going to do this. Yeah. (laughs) So obviously they were arrested and convicted as accessories, right, to providing (laughs) illegal contraceptives, which they were expecting and hoping for. (laughs) Um, So they were each fined $100, which in 1961 would have been $869 each today. Mm -hmm. Um, You wonder if they were like black or brown people, if they would have gotten prison time or something instead. I I found that interesting that they were only fined. Yeah. They decided to appeal to the Connecticut Supreme Court claiming a violation of constitutional rights. And the Connecticut Supreme Court upheld the convictions and 
said, no way, this is not a violation of your rights. So then they appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the case was reviewed in 1965. Mm. So now we come to the case. So the Supreme Court, in a 7-2 decision, so, you know, seven agreeing that it was unconstitutional and two dissenting, Mm -hmm. ruled that the law violated the right to marital privacy and could not be enforced against married people. Oh. So let's just be clear. Yes. This is only pertaining to married women. Yikes. Not single women. Ugh. Mm -hmm. Poor single women. Because you know why? They probably were like, oh, well, they can get their husband's consent. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a combination of the man is in charge and should get to be part of or make that decision. Mm -hmm. And also women who are single who have sex are sluts. Precisely. (laughs) <laughs> yay <laughs> so it's a it's a step in the right direction but it's just one step not like a giant leap <laughs> but it was it was huge mm-hmm. the decision was written by justice william o douglas and basically he said that uh, the bill of rights specifically guarantees a general right to privacy that cannot be infringed upon mm-hmm. no matter what And this right to privacy is fundamental when it comes to the actions of married couples because it cannot be denied that if you are violating a married couple's privacy, then you are violating their principles of liberty and justice, which is the basis of everything. Yeah, I mean, privacy, it's funny because it's not actually written anywhere in the constitution the word privacy it's not it's it's certainly like as a privacy professional it's really funny the impact that privacy as a concept has on so many laws right and that's what the two that dissented said that it's not explicitly written Mm. in the constitution but it's kind of in there with free speech yep um, freedom from search and seizure, freedom from self-incrimination, right? All these things are freedom to privacy when you boil it down. Yes, exactly. So because a married couple's use of contraception constitutes a, like a fundamental right, the Supreme Court said that Connecticut had to prove to the court that its law is compelling and absolutely necessary to overcome that right, which they could not do. Mm. Nope. (laughs) Yes. So other justices agreed. Some of them wrote like slightly differing opinions, but it all basically came down to this fundamental right to privacy. So uh, the the two justices that dissented were Justice Stewart and Justice Black, and they filed a separate dissenting opinion. And I love this. Stewart argued that despite his personal views that the law was, and I quote, uncommonly silly. (laughs) 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 he felt that the court had no choice but to find it constitutional because it does not explicitly say privacy in the constitution oh geez so he was saying like my personal belief is that this law is stupid but i'm not going to say it's unconstitutional oh interesting Mm mm-hmm that that whole thing about the word privacy not being in the Constitution comes up so often. Right. Like in my job every day, I see examples of people using that as an argument either for or against something. And I'm just like, why? Like, no, we didn't put that word in there. But obviously, like, that's what all of these things mean. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Obviously, it ended up working just as 
Griswold and Dr. Buxton had wanted, and it overturned that law, which had far-reaching effects in the country for other laws, obviously, in other states. And over the next 10 years, the court expanded this fundamental right to privacy beyond just married couples, ruling that a state could not ban the use of contraceptives by anyone. And I don't think that happened until the 70s. And then uh, we get to uh, Roe v. Wade in 73, that they couldn't ban abortions either. So this case sort of paved the way for Roe v. Wade. Mm. Contraception was deemed so unacceptable at the time. They felt that families should not decide when they were going to have children, that children just happen, and (laughs) that's what you do. You take care of them, right? And women should want to have as many children as come their way because that is their calling. That is their... That's the point of them. Right. That's that's (laughs) their only point. Um, So the, the concept of family planning starts to become a thing, and it has, like, really wonderful effects not just for poor people, but for everyone, because you can choose how many children you want and how far apart you want to space those kids and when you want to have those kids. Mm -hmm. So it's a really wonderful thing that we all do. I I don't know anybody who hasn't to some degree tried at least to plan their family and how they're going to do things. So yeah, we can thank Estelle Griswold, although she definitely had some shady things going on with her beliefs. Yeah. Um, In the end, this was a really good thing for women. Yeah. Well, thank you, Estelle. Yes. Thank you, Estelle, right? I thought that was really cool. So I feel like this is a case that that we all should know because it really changed family life in America. You can tell from the numbers that this affected women throughout the country, From 1960 to 2011, the percentage of women who completed four or more years of college multiplied by six. Oh! Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And the number of married women in the labor force nearly doubled between 1960 and 2012. Oh, my word. So it it has to have something to do with the fact that women could choose when they wanted to have children. Yeah. You just give women control of their own destinies. And they can participate in the world, which is why no one wants to give us control of our own destinies. That's right. So there you go. That is Griswold versus Connecticut. Nice. Nice. Well, I learned a lot tonight. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, hopefully everyone is enjoying this episode. Yeah, I say that because we're recording slightly differently for the first time this week, and we're now each recording locally. So hopefully our sound quality on both ends is going to be much improved from previous episodes. However, if it's if it's not or things sound a little funny or glitchy or whatever, please forgive us, specifically me, because <laughs> I do all of the editing and mixing and all that stuff. And, and I'm sort of trying new things this week. So we'll see how it comes out. But hopefully, everything just just gets better. We're crossing our fingers here. I, I, I have a good feeling. Yeah, I feel pretty good about it. If you have any thoughts or comments, compliments, concerns, anything, there are lots of ways to get in touch with us. The most obvious of which is to send us an email at opdwpodcast at gmail.com. 
We are also on Twitter and Instagram at OPDW Podcast. And we have a page on Facebook where we post lots of interesting things about parenting and wacky stuff from the past. So come play with us. Please. (laughs) And our music is by Theo Rosenberg. So thank you, Theo. Thanks, Theo. All right, Diane, until next time. You have our permission to break uncommonly silly laws. (laughs) 